0: When Jesus Christ rose from the dead on Easter morning, he rose as the beginning of the new world that God had always intended and will result, it says in Colossians 1.20, in the restoration of everything that is now corrupted, which is everything. That's the first, and perhaps the most important thing to know about the meaning of Easter, and it's meaning that matters. I believe, though I still occasionally doubt, as in relationships on Facebook, it's complicated. I believe that the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the death is a fact but I also believe that facts are most often rendered meaningless without a frame to give them meaning. This is especially relevant in our day where an unrelenting shower of unframed facts inundates us every minute of every day. Edna St. Vincent Millay expressed this well in her 1988 poem, Upon This Age. Part of which goes, upon this gifted age, in its dark hour, rains from the sky a meteoric shower of facts. They lie unquestioned, uncombined. Wisdom enough to leech us of our ill is daily spun. But there exists no loom to weave it into fabric. It's not that facts don't matter, just that they aren't all that helpful without a proper frame to give them meaning. Meaning is the frame, the loom that weaves facts into fabric. We can do all the apologetics we want, but in a post-Christian, been-there-done-that culture, I believe the challenge before followers of Jesus today is not so much to prove that the resurrection is fact, but to show that it has meaning because meaning is one of the deepest desires of the human soul and the resurrection of Jesus Christ reframes everything, bringing hope, life, and meaning to every part of human existence. Paul recognizes this reality in 1 Corinthians 15, where he spends most of this really long chapter, not so much trying to prove that the resurrection happened, but framing what the resurrection means. It is the longest writing on the resurrection in the New Testament. It begins in verse 1 with, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you, and ends 58 verses later, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, and all of it is one long train of thought. So we want to think about it as a whole and not dissect it into parts. Today's epistle reading is just a small part of a very much longer writing. And every Christian ought to be familiar with this chapter of the Bible. To be sure, Paul does begin with some facts, some ways the facts of the resurrection can be known to his readers. Again, facts are important. They're just not ultimate. First, he says, just investigate for yourself in verses 3 and 4 of of 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to... To the scriptures. These two verses contain a key part of both the Apostles and Nicene creeds, Christianity's irreducible core. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. In other words, he was really, really dead. That's what it means that he descended to the dead. And he was raised from death on the third day. The key phrase here is according to the scriptures. What were the scriptures he was talking about? It was the Old Testament, because Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament, archetypes, in symbols, and in practices. And on Sunday afternoon of his resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, talking with the two disciples, it says in, in, in Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Because of this, Christians have always read the Old Testament that way. Jesus fulfilled something like 353 very specific Old Testament prophecies, of which the odds are like 1 to the 10 and 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Wow. I'm okay at arithmetic. It's just math I'm really bad at. 1 in 10 to the 17th power. And Jesus Christ gives them all meaning. Every one of them. Paul says it's all there. You can check it out from yourself. Just read the scriptures. 30,000 feet. Not going to go deeper than that today. He also says, ask the eyewitnesses in verses five through eight. Then he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. First Corinthians was written about 20 years after the resurrection. Many of the people were still alive. And he just says, ask them. They'll tell you all throughout the Gospels, especially Mark, which is the earliest Gospel that was written, uh, they're always dropping names, names of people that you could, you could check with. And all Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what, what are called the synoptic Gospels, were all written within a generation of, of the resurrection. So you could just ask. You could just ask people. Yeah, you might think, well, of course, but these are just a bunch of uneducated, superstitious pre-moderns accepting the resurrection without critical thought. Listen, part of the reason why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15 is because people didn't accept it. It was no more realistic to them than it was, is to us today. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, calls being so quick to think that chronological snobbery, and um, he talks about it in Mere Christianity quite a bit. Um, It's not my point here, just read the book, it's fabulous. But he says, Paul, these are the facts. Then in the rest of the chapter, he goes on to explain the resurrected Jesus is a foretaste of what every believer will someday be. We see our own glorious eternal future in Jesus's resurrected body. He also describes what our glorious resurrected bodies will be like, and then he concludes that if the resurrection weren't true, our faith would be worthless, and we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry. Wish we had more time to go into it all, but we don't, so I'm going to cut to the therefore. So Paul has written this long, incredible discourse on the resurrection. I mean, what's he going to say after that? How does it apply? Like a a double rainbow, what does it mean? What does he tell them to do? You might think it would be some lofty, super spiritual principle or deep theological maxim, but you'd be wrong. And you'd kind of be right as well. He sort of just says get up tomorrow and go to work. Let me explain. Verse 58 says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that, it, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I've shared this before, but my parents had a needlepoint hanging in the hallway of our house that was just two lines of a poem, a missionary recruiting poem uh, from uh, 1893, that said these two lines, only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. The message was clear from that, that if you want to do meaningful work, if you want to do significant work, you will do Christian work explicitly Christian work. That's important work, but I don't believe that's all Paul is talking about. Because labor in the Lord is an important phrase. The word that he chooses for labor is simply the word for common everyday work. In other words, it's, going, it's what you're going to be doing tomorrow at this time. And even if you want to attach it too tightly to the phrase, the work of the Lord, I would ask a simple question. What is the work of the Lord? Well, Colossians 1.20, I referred to it earlier, tells us it's through Jesus to redeem everything. Everything? What does that include? Medicine, law, parenting, education, art, marketing, finance, government. I'm no genius, but I'd say all of those fit under the rubric of everything. This has to be changed or framed by the four-chapter gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Or our shorthand for that, ought is, can, will. That's the work of the Lord. Chapter three, redemption. And it's a huge job because of the fall, which is chapter two. Nothing in this world, nothing is as it ought to be, including the church, for the Christian, all work, all good work. Let me rephrase. start that again. For the Christian, all good work. And if you were with us at the beginning of January, do you remember what I said is good work? Any work that further brings further order to creation is good work. So if you're doing work that is bringing disorder to people's lives and to creation, stop. That's bad work. For the Christian, all good work is labor in the Lord and finds its meaning in the reality of the resurrection. Here's how. One, the resurrection of Jesus Christ affirms that the physical world is good. We are embodied beings living in a physical world and we will spend eternity as embodied beings in a physical world, corruptible now incorruptible then, it is all in First Corinthians 15. Yes, all stuff can be distorted and corrupted. Food, wine, sex, money, work, you name it. Because sin is not only doing bad things, it's also making good things, ultimate things. In fact, because of the fall, that is our tendency. But still, our physicality isn't a result of the fall. It's what God always intended for us for eternity. And resurrection affirms that. Two, the resurrection of Jesus Christ also means the present world and the new creation are connected. The frustration of our current age isn't the whole picture. The new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22 isn't a brand new creation, uh, ex nihilo, out of nothing, but the old creation purified, renewed, restored, and transformed into something once again as it ought to be. Jesus is not making all things new in Revelation 21. He is making, or not making all new things. Oh, wow. I, I hope you know what I meant when I just said that in Revelation 21, Jesus is not making all new things. He is making all things new, which is much more powerful if you say it that way the first time. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, it is everyone and everything finally, finally fulfilling their creational design Our prevailing cultural assumption is that life's a you-know-what, and then you die. This is all there is. N.T. Wright says, The resurrection teaches us that the transition from the present world to the new one will be a matter not of destruction of the current space-time reality, but of its radical healing And when we begin to grasp the resurrection truth that the future destiny of our work and our world is not annihilation but healing, it reframes entirely how we see what we do every day. If we believe that the earth, everything about it and everything we do on it, is simply going to one day be abolished and disappear, then the logical and natural conclusion is that our daily work is virtually meaningless. But Paul is saying that if our daily work is done in the Lord in some mysterious way, it carries over to the new heavens and the new earth. That means our present work itself is overflowing with immeasurable meaning and literal, eternal significance. The resurrection of Jesus Christ empowers Christians to imagine a new creation, the fully realized kingdom of God, and to work to begin the process of building for that kingdom right here, right now, through the power of the resurrected Christ at work within us. If you were going to say amen, that's where you should say it. Thank you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that no good endeavor will ever be wasted. Making things, fixing things, writing things, caring for others caring for things, and serving others. It is a mystery, and Anglicans, if they don't, if they love anything, they love mystery. But the skills and abilities you're developing now in your school and in your workplace won't be wasted. They'll be utilized and further developed in the future work God has for you to do in the new heavens and the new earth. Your time on here in our Father's fallen world is a preparation for an eternity of activity and creativity in the new heavens and the new earth. Your good work matters not only now, but also for the future. I'm not minimizing the inefficient and mundane aspects that can be part of of all of our work and and the toil that it all seems at times. Every job has a host of tasks that don't excite us or unleash our creative energies, even mine. But if we look at our work through the lens of the resurrection, our work, no matter what we've been called to do, is imbued with significance and meaning. In Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright also says, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 insists that what you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into the fire. You are not planting a rose garden that's about to be dug up as a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, and almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every good endeavor will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation God will one day make. God's recreation of his wonderful world which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and by the Spirit in the present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world and will in fact be enhanced there. The resurrection of Jesus means that all good work has meaning. And I would contend that this reality is one of the more incredible gifts that Christians have for our generation because meaning is one of the deepest desires of the human soul. I've seen this desire firsthand in some of the coaching work I do, um, which is all about asking questions. And E.E. Cummings said, always the beautiful answer who asks the more beautiful question. And when you ask the question, what do you actually desire from your work? Guess what? Unanimously, The answer is meaning and not money. Or nearly always. The average American will spend nearly 100,000 hours of their adult life in their work, which is nearly 12 years, 24/7. 85% of Americans describe their work as meaningless. For most Americans, daily work is the equivalent of a 12-year prison sentence. And I find that heartbreaking. And disillusionment is happening younger and younger. Go home and Google quarter-life crisis. It's a thing. And you will receive over 135 million results. This is why connecting Sunday to Monday Is one of my personal core values because Sunday the day of the resurrection gives meaning to every other thing we're doing in every other day even our work and so maybe just maybe the best way to show our culture what the resurrection means is to just get up tomorrow and do our work whatever our work is to do it well with Christ at the center, and to demonstrate by our lives that it has meaning, and that, and that to give those around us just the smallest taste of eternity, maybe it'll even make them curious. And we can do that because the resurrection of Jesus Christ reframes everything, bringing hope, life, and meaning to every part of human existence, even our work. and I would like to pray for you and with you. God of heaven and earth, we praise you for the resurrection and we pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us to see our work as woven into your work in the world this week, for mothers and fathers at home who care for children, for those who manage households, For those whose labor forms our common life in this community, the nation, and the world. For those who serve in the marketplace of ideas and commerce. For those whose creative gifts serve us all. For those whose callings take them into education, law, medicine, counseling, science, engineering, and technology. And for those who long for employment that satisfies their soul and serves you. For each one we pray, asking for your great mercy. Give us eyes to see that even our daily work is holy to you, O Lord, even as our worship to you today is holy. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.